Hey, it's Gaz here. Before we get into this week's episode, just a few housekeeping things to note. You might hear the quality of my voice is a little bit better. Whoa, look out. That's right. Of upgrade. This is a process. We're getting there. Pun intended. Nice. So some of the things on the visual and the audio side are improving. Uh, hopefully you'll enjoy the improvements. Also, this episode's getting released on a Thursday. Our schedule is going to get a little different because of popular demand. People want me to give sports takes again, which is very flattering. And I'm looking forward to that. So that might be your favorite episodes on the way. So kind of the schedule going forward. And who knows if this is going to change throughout. Maybe we'll add more shows. We'll see how this all goes. But Mondays and Wednesdays, we're still going to tell stories about media members, coaches, business owners, and more. We're going to tell stories about my career and other people's careers. And this Thursday slot is going to be more of your regular sports talk, the biggest stories of the day and everything else. So if you are a big sports fan and you've been one of the people saying, gosh, I want to hear you give takes and picks and your take on the biggest stories of the day, we're going to make it a weekly show. Thursdays is when it's going to come out. So be on the lookout for that. So Thursday format's going to change a little bit going forward. And also, this microphone is awesome. I'm really excited that I got to use it, but if you know me, this whole tech thing, I've been making it work. I'm very proud of myself for a nice brag, but uh, I screwed up the first part of this Doug interview. So like the first two and a half minutes, there's an echo on Doug's side. It's because of me. It gets fixed after the first two and a half minutes. So if it starts driving you insane, I promise you it's not like that the entire interview. Giving you the heads up now. If you just want to scroll forward to like the four minute mark, that's okay where it sounds a little bit better. But I wanted to leave those stories in about the start of Doug's career and everything else. So trust me, it gets better after the first two and a half minutes. I screwed up my mic, but I didn't want to edit it out because it's good content. All right, here we go. Getting there with Goss. It's the theme song. Another edition here of Getting There with Gaz, an exciting episode here. And we have a very exciting guest, somebody that I know, somebody that if you're from the Capital Region or maybe even from Central New York, you may remember. On the visual side, you already see who it is, but on the audio side, for those who don't know who you are, introduce yourself. Tell us what you'd like to be called during this episode. Um, my name is Doug Sherman, and I'd like to be referred to as Michael Jordan. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. I'm not doing it. I'm going to break oh, the rules of my own podcast. <laughs> gave me an option. I no. know, I did. You're the first one who's taking me up on that, by the way. <laughs> well, take us through your first job you wanted as a kid. What did you want to be when you were six years old? And was it the same job you wanted when you were 18 years old? Yes. And uh, I always wanted to be a baseball player. Uh, basketball would have been second, but uh, not until I got to college did I really start to contemplate the fact that, well, I'm probably not going to get drafted. I'm probably not going to make it to professional sports in that manner. I better figure something else out. So by that time, you figure out that you want to be a sports broadcaster. You're 17, you're 18 years old, you're off to Syracuse University. Take us through the process of why you decided to go to Syracuse University. Yeah, no, I grew up in Elbridge, New York, just outside of Syracuse, and I wanted to stay close to home, A, and I wanted to go into broadcasting, B, and so obviously SU's Newhouse School is the best there is, and WAER Radio was where I wanted to get to, where I could cut my teeth and, and see if I had what it took to get into this field. And so I did not apply anywhere else. I did early decision at SU, got in, and 
There was no other thought about it. I was going to go to Syracuse. So take us through that first time you stepped foot at Newhouse, an intimidating spot. You're a freshman. We're kind of similar. We're both from small schools. It's a big transition from going from that small school in central New York to the college. That's the big time school. How'd you feel stepping into campus and figuring out the next path of your career? It's so young in your freshman year. Intimidating. You know, Newhouse has a reputation for a reason. And the radio station had a meeting in that first week in the, the fall of 1984 for students who wanted to have a shot at being on the sports staff of WAER. And there were about 70 of us in that first meeting fighting for what would turn out to be four spots. And one of them was Mike Tirico. By the time I already figured out where the station was, he may as well have been an upperclassman. He was so far ahead of everybody else. So that left 69 of us fighting for three spots. And over the course of the next year and a half, we all sorted it out. Nutrition, some people left. They couldn't deal with the schedule. They couldn't deal with what we had to do to get on the air. Uh, You had to get cleared to get on the air. You couldn't just show up and say, I want to be a sportscaster. You showed up, said you wanted to be a sportscaster, and then got put through the ringer. And you got taught and critiqued hard by the upperclassmen. And if you could do that and get yourself better over the course of months and years of labor, then you could get on the air. So that was what I was facing as the 17-year-old kid from Elbridge trying to figure out, boy, that Mike Tirico guy, he's pretty sharp. How can I compete with him? Let me clarify that, though, for those who may not understand. You talked about fighting for spots, giving the opportunity to get cleared. You're getting cleared by upperclassmen, correct? Even if that is the case, there's got to be some type of friction, some type of weird animosity where these people are only a few years older than them, and they're deciding your future? No question. And if you don't have the proper amount of humility, you'll get crushed. And so you really need to swallow hard and understand that's the way it's set up. It's a student-run operation, and it's done that way for a reason. The station does have professionals on staff and professional oversight, but it's all completely student-run in the sports department, and so it's up to you to sink or swim. And it opens the station up and the department up for a lot of critical uh, critiques, I guess I should say, because of what you said. Hey, my professional career is going to be stunted by some 20 year old who thinks he understands the industry you got to be kidding me and so there's a lot of that that goes on and and i understand that i mean it's a lot of money to go to syracuse um but it is not a fait accompli that you're going to get on that station there are other stations there are other avenues there are other outlets on campus uh but if you want to be on that station on that sports staff you got to play by those rules take us through that process of what finally happens how you get cleared, when you get cleared, and when you're able to make that debut on the air in Central New York? Well, there are layers to getting cleared, guys. I mean, the first thing you get cleared is to do sports updates. And this is the way it was 35 years ago. Exactly how it is nowadays, I don't know. Talk is a much bigger part of the equation where when we were there, it was all about either doing sports updates or doing play-by-play. There was no real talk show other than pre-game and post-game. So it's probably a little different now, but First, you had to be cleared to get on the air, and I didn't get cleared to do a sportscast on WAER until my sophomore year. So it took me my entire freshman year. At the same time, I was at another campus radio station, the one that 
is easier to get on the air on WJPZ. And I did get on the air there. And the combination of doing that and also doing the weekly shifts at four o'clock in the morning at WAER and making practice tapes uh, and being critiqued finally got me on the air by my sophomore year. And then I didn't get cleared to do play-by-play -play for basketball till my junior year and then didn't get cleared to do football on AER until my senior year. So it's a whole different process and we're all on different paths and journeys. I chose not to try and get on the air for lacrosse. It didn't interest me. And football, I really didn't pursue as hard. I mean, basketball is my passion along with baseball. So those are the sports that I know the best. Um, and the path that I took is probably fairly typical with basketball. If you are cleared to do basketball on that station, before your junior year, that means you're on the fast track. WJPZ, by the way, for those listening in Central New York, that is Z89. That's what that's more known as. So here you are. You're on the air. Take us through 1980s Syracuse athletics. And when you're there, Doug, this is the glory years of Syracuse athletics. It was remarkable. I mean, it's impossible to say how lucky we all were at that time to be inside the carrier dome for all the magic moments. So start with football. My senior year was the undefeated season. I was on the air calling the West Virginia game when Michael Owens scored the two point conversion. A so legendary moment. Yes. We'll start with that. And then instead of going to the sugar bowl, I opted to stay and do the basketball that was being played at the dome that new years of 87, 88, it turned out that they were playing Siena uh, by coincidence at the Dome, and I did a Siena-Syracuse game. Um, but, you know, we had obviously Pro Washington and Sherman Douglas and Derek Coleman, and the 1987 team was remarkable. Uh, and obviously losing to Indiana was a bitter pill to swallow. I did not call that game, but I was in the Superdome as a fan um, having fun. And then going into my senior year, 87-88, Syracuse was the number one ranked team in the country. Again, you've got a roster full of NBA players who had just lost on a last-second shot in the national title with all of those guys coming back. We only lost Greg Monroe and Howard Trish, the two captains, so all the NBA guys were coming back. So we were number one in the country coming in, and it was a huge disappointment when uh, Syracuse didn't even make it to the Sweet 16 my senior year, and Danny Manning and, and uh, Kansas wound up winning it. But you know, there were so many remarkable moments in the lacrosse program as a fan and as an undergrad, even though I was not calling the games, I worked those games as a studio host and as a statistician and to watch the Gate brothers do their thing in person was jaw drop. So it, yeah, if there's no way there's any other time in Syracuse sports history, you could have had more fun than we did in the mid late eighties. It's amazing. You're having all these great moments calling these games. And I always use the comparison of the movie Friday Night Lights, you have that Texas high school football player who plays in front of these incredible crowds and almost the next level is going to be disappointing for you. Eventually, when you leave Syracuse, what is that first professional job? And is a central New Yorker, does it almost feel like a letdown? Well, I was piecing things together as most folks do. And, and I, I did want to tell you, I didn't fully answer. The best basketball game that I had at Syracuse was the championship of the 87 Great Alaska Shootout, Syracuse, Arizona. Nine NBA players plus Kenny Lofton. Wow. Think about the talent on that court at Sullivan Arena in Anchorage, Alaska. It was mind-numbing. So as you say, so I'm sitting there courtside as a 21-year-old thinking, boy, I've got the world figured out. I'm calling this game and look at me. 
And then you, you know, reality hits and all of a sudden, oh my gosh, I got to get a real job and try to convince somebody to pay me to do this stuff. So uh, I had worked for the Syracuse Chiefs uh, during college as the public address announcer. And I continued doing that over the summer of 88. Then I got a job at WSYR radio doing news and sports, doing updates and reporting. So I did that for a year. Then I left and got a television job in Elmira at WENY that also had some radio. I did that for two months before I got what I really consider my first full-time job was in Albany working for WPTR radio and also calling Siena basketball games on radio. Hang on a second though. I thought you served as the broadcaster for the Syracuse Chiefs. Is my timeline out of order? Cause you were in Syracuse, but when did you end up being the chief broadcaster? No, nope, you got it. I went back. So after I did my four seasons of Siena basketball on the radio in Albany, the Chiefs hired me back as their radio guy. So I went back in 93 and 94 and did two years of play-by-play on the radio in Syracuse. Okay, so that is a little confusing because you're jumping from one market to another market and then back to another market. That seems very rare. I don't even know if I have another example of my career where I can even piece that together with somebody else. But I just want to sit on that Chief thing for a second here because I hope people understand the history of that Syracuse Chief and now known as the Syracuse Met Organization. Go through the list of those broadcasters. Marv Albert, Sean McDonough, Dan Horde, Jason Benetti, Kevin Brown, and you, Doug. Like, you're there, Matt Vascursion. You're on the list here of some of the most elite broadcasters who have ever done this. That's what that company is for the Syracuse Chiefs, now known as the Syracuse Mets. Yeah, it was very cool. And, you know, the common denominator in that great list that you just had, guys, other than Matt Vascursion, all of us, WAER Radio. And so, you know, it's the perfect feeder. And like when Sean McDonough was doing Syracuse Chiefs on the radio, that was as an undergraduate at SU. And that was what I thought I was getting into when I went to Syracuse, that I'd have the opportunity to call Chiefs games as an undergrad. But after Sean graduated in the spring of 84, by the time I got there in the fall of 84, AER had lost the contract to call Chiefs games. So we did not have that anymore. But anyhow. Doing those two years of Chiefs baseball in 93 and 94, I wouldn't trade them for anything. I made no money. It was, you know, what everybody says about a minor league lifestyle. It's tough. It's brutal. Uh, The travel is awful. But it was unbelievable. And and my first year in 93, the Chiefs were terrible. Uh, But 94, they were great. They had Carlos Delgado and Sean Green. And it was We made it to the uh, Governor's Cup championship series and it's one of the great seasons in the history of what has been a subpar one loss record for the Chiefs I mean I happened to be there for two years and one of them was arguably their second greatest season ever so we're now post Chiefs where are we going to land here we're like mid 90s 94 95 what happens take us through the process of what happens next for Doug Sherman all right so well I I, I was a substitute teacher at Jordan Elbridge for a while peace and thanks hey. again making no money doing, you know, little radio jobs. I mean, that was a big part of the reason why in the summer of 95, um, I had a decision to make. I've been told by lots and lots of colleagues, Doug, you need to get into television. If you want to have any sort of ability to make money, not get rich, but just, you know, I was 26 or 27 at the time, and I still didn't 
own a, any furniture. I mean, I, I had been making $7,500 a year working for the Chiefs. I mean, you couldn't sustain that. I couldn't sustain that. So in the summer of 95, I knew I had to get something different. So I started working for Channel 3, uh, WSTM in Syracuse with Dave Ryan uh, and Adam Benini. And so Dave hired me there and said, use this just to get yourself out of here. Get yourself that next job and get yourself going. But I was still a radio guy and I still am like, well, I want to do radio. So I had a job offer in the summer of 95 from 1010 Wins Radio in New York City to be a sports update guy. At the same time, I was offered the weekend sports job back in Albany on WRGB television, the CBS affiliate. So there I'm at my crossroads in the summer of 95 thinking, well, I can either continue in radio, go to New York City and make $35,000 a year and still live in squalor, or I can move to Albany, make $5,000 less, but Albany's a lot cheaper than New York City, plus that's my real entree into television. So in the summer of 95, I took the television job, took the full television leap, and have been a TV guy ever since. This return to television, your early first year, and we may have some people listening or watching on our YouTube side. We may have some younger broadcasters who hear this and are making this adjustment as well, that you're going back to television. What was that first year like? Was it a tough adjustment period? Whether it's you know the mid-90s or 2021, what was that first year like for you getting reacquainted with the television side of this industry? Absolutely, and, and you're exactly right, guys. And I had done a little bit of television at SU. I had done, like I said, that quick television stint at WENY and Elmira, but largely, again, I had processed and thought of myself as a radio guy. So among the adjustments, when you go to television, they sound basic and rudimentary, but until you are sitting in front of the camera, you really don't know how you're gonna do it. So you've gotta think about making eye contact with the camera. Uh, where do I look when I'm interviewing somebody? Uh, how do I hold the microphone? Uh, you got to wear makeup and, and deal with all that and think about that. And, and all of a sudden, I can't just be a slob behind a microphone. I've actually got to shave and I've got to put on a shirt and tie. And these are things that until you get thrust into the world of being on television, you don't necessarily have to deal with. So it took a while to get used to that. Um, and the style of play-by-play -play is dramatically different, too. You know, if you're the, the radio play-by-play -play voice of a team, you are the star of that broadcast. You are the eyes and the ears for your audience. You tell them everything they can have. Whereas in television, you're just kind of window dressing. You're setting things up. You're setting your partner up. You're working with a producer. You're working with a director. And you're trying to tell a collective story that does not interfere with the pictures. So that is a big adjustment, uh, more so than the adjustment from radio update guy to in-studio television sports guy, if that makes sense. It does. At this time, who's on your staff at CBS? Uh, that is a guy named Rick Renner, who has spent the last 20 years at Fox Sports Southwest in Dallas. He was the sports director and I was the weekend guy. Uh, and then uh, less than two years after I got there in the spring of 97, Renner left and they promoted me to be the sports director. So I took over the Monday through Friday sports cast at the CBS affiliate in Albany in uh, May of 97. Wait a second. Didn't, did Joe Tessitore and you ever cross paths? Of course, Monday Night Football, ESPN broadcaster, Capital Region. Do you guys think cross paths? I replaced Joe Tessitore. 
So Tess left when he didn't get the job that Renner got. He immediately started looking for another job. He landed at FSB in Hartford, and I came and replaced him at RGB in Albany. Okay, this is the who is the who of broadcasters we're going through here through the career of Doug Sherman. So, help us out here. You're back in television. You're in the capital region again. You've had some background working with the Siena Saints. When does the play-by-play element come in? Is it early in your tenure there? Do you have to wait a few years? How does it happen? How do you get back behind the microphone and also go back to the play-by-play side of this industry? No, within a year, I had gotten an offer to do uh, the Metro Atlantic Athletic Conference games on the MSG network. And that was a byproduct of having done Sienna Radio, that one of the people who was working now in the Mac office had known me from my Sienna Radio times. They had an opening and they offered it to me. So starting in the fall of 96, I started doing... It was probably the package was only eight or 10 games the first year. And, and over the course of the next decade, it grew to four times that size. So I never really stopped doing play-by-play for any length of time. And I always had worked into my contracts at the local television affiliate that I could do that and had a non-specific number of games that I was allowed to do so that if other opportunities came up, I was able to do that as long as I could cover my shift with somebody back at WRGB. I'm glad you covered that because some people are probably confused. And I was just about to ask that question of how are you able to do this? Because some games are played on the weekdays, some are played on the weekend. How was he able to pull this off? Also from a contract situation, is that rare? Do people, are people able to do that anymore? Yeah, I don't think it's rare, but I think the language in mind probably was rare. A lot of local sports guys wind up doing side gigs, but They're more similar to what mine started as in 96 and not what it grew to by the early mid 2000s in terms of volume. So again, I had the language in my contract that didn't specifically say Doug can do eight basketball games outside of our network every year. It just said he can do this. And so eight turned to 10, turned to 15, turned to 30, turned to 60. And I was still making it work. So that where it went to, I think, is rare, but where it began, I think, is is fairly common. I just was very fortunate to get the, that language in the first contract, and I, I re-signed at Channel 6 maybe five or six times over the years, and every time it was important to me to have that clause grandfathered into every contract, and with every different station manager and news director who I negotiated with, for whatever reason or reasons, they accepted it and accepted the fact that I was just going to be gone some of the time. You're getting every gig around, man. You're working constantly at this point in your career. Yeah. It, it, you know, the only way I could enjoy it, though, gods, uh, which I did, was because, A, my wife is unbelievable and terribly supportive and had similar support at work from my coworkers in the sports office. So starting with Rick Renner and then followed up with primarily Tim Mack and Kelly O'Donnell, if not for those three people on the professional side and then with my wife at home without each of those people supporting me as they did a i couldn't have done it or b i couldn't have done it with as much joy as i was allowed to have done so and i didn't even mention that in the midst of all that uh wrow radio had me do a nightly sports talk show uh in 2001 so that was my third job on top of it and i never wanted to do that job because like, I can't do that. That's too much. And 
Paul Vandenberg kept asking and kept asking and kept throwing more money and kept throwing more money. And then he got in cahoots with my boss at Channel 6. And the two of them said, oh, this is going to be great. I'm like, all right, I'll do it. And it, it was too much. That was the tipping point. And so doing that nightly radio talk show in addition to the TV and the play-by-play was, was too much. So it coincided with September 11th, 2001, that it was near the end of that contract. It was a one-year deal. And I wanted to walk away. The world had just changed. And Paul Vandenberg at ROW, I think, also understood we don't need to be doing a nightly sports talk show in the foreseeable future when this has just happened in New York City. We need to focus all of our attention on what the world is like. So we agreed amicably to say that's enough. And that's probably the only thing that keep me from kept me from losing my mind. Because if I had kept trying to do that radio on top of it, I would have I would have lost it. It is a compliment to your work, Doug. That's why they keep bringing you back, because you're doing a good job. But you did mention a key word there, and that's volume. That even though you're more established in your career at this point, you're still saying yes. I think some people need to understand that, that, Doug, you're not saying no to everything. You're not saying no to anything. How important is that when you get, are given these opportunities to take these opportunities? Well, as you know, guys, I mean, quite often your greatest ability is availability. And I didn't come up with that. I've heard that a million times. But the reality is, as soon as you start saying no is, I mean, there is so much competition for these positions that we have. I work out of fear as much as anything else and certainly did in my 20s, 30s and 40s that, well, if I start saying no, they're just going to go to the next guy on the list and they'll forget about me. So I have to say yes to everything. And I think that's the prevailing mindset for most of us, that we understand how fortunate we are to hold these jobs and that they're precious and they're fleeting. I want to get to the 2016 stuff and we're going to, but I'm a little bit less familiar with this part of your career. So like 2001 to 2016, I just don't want to gloss over it, but there's a part of me that wants to jump to that. Help me fill this part in, if you don't mind. Tell us a little bit about some of the standout things that happened in your career from 2001 to 2016. Yeah, the only thing I'll add is that uh, MSG lost the rights to do those Mac games, those Mac basketball games in 05. ESPN got them, and that was how I wedged my way into the ESPN world for the 0506 season. So then that expanded once I started doing games, then ESPN started asking me to do more and more games. And that's how it continued to grow uh, while I was still at WRGB. Uh, and, and I do want to say, I don't want to just gloss over that decade and, and say all I was doing was pursuing play-by-play. I was fully dedicated 24 seven, even when I was on the road, to making sure I was doing the Firebirds justice and the River Rats justice and the Great Danes justice every single day for every single sports cast. So that's it. Yes, that's all I will say about that decade. Let's sit on that ESPN thing for a second, though, because that is a big deal. For people like me, maybe for you listening, we're all sports fans. And to have that moment of you're on ESPN, that stick, that microphone, where you have that picture and it's you as a broadcaster holding the microphone no matter what area you grew up in like especially if you're in the 90s like me you're working for espn like doug this happens absolutely and you know the when the mac joined forces with espn it coincided with the launch of espn u so that was in 05 and they were looking for programming and so i was only on espn u i say only in air quotes for those first couple of years so that was a big deal but they had a different mic flag with a different logo it was just the u and it took a couple of years to finally get 
another gig, and it was a game. It was Buffalo at Fresno State for a bracket buster, and I remember it like it was yesterday, standing there with a full ESPN microphone, the mic flag, thinking this is pretty cool, and I got a picture of it, and it's very special. It really means a lot because you know what it's like. You know, you work, and you scratch, and you claw, and that ESPN brand stands alone. It really does. 2015-2016 is a very interesting part of your career. I'm just going to kind of take a step back here and let you explain exactly what happens in this change in this offer that comes about in your career. Yeah, I, I uh, this is when I got to know you and, and uh, you uh, and Levesque would come over and come to the station for your weekly hit. And uh, at that point, I had been offered a full-time job by ESPN in the summer of 2015, but I still was under contract with WRGB through the end of October, 2016. And so I accepted knowing that I was going to transition and just go full-time ESPN, but I also didn't want to break my contractual obligations and just walk away from RGB because they'd been so good to me. So I managed to really juggle those two worlds as a full-time employee of both for the last 17 months, 16, no, 16 months, I guess, that I was at RGB. Um, and it largely didn't change my workflow while I was officially full-time at ESPN. Uh, RGB was still my first priority, but as a part-timer, I was doing so many games for ESPN that my number of games really didn't change all that much when I became, quote, full-time. You know what I mean? So the people yes. back at the station weren't thinking, oh, my God, this has changed dramatically. What's going on with Doug? And so I let them know in the summer of 2016, as it was getting to about three months remaining in my contract, that this is what's going on. I don't plan to resign uh, at the end of October 2016. I'm going to go full time to ESPN. And uh, I wanted to give them time to replace me and, you know, not just drop a bomb on them. And it was important to me, guys, thinking, I'll probably never work anywhere else in my life longer than I did the 21 years at RGB. I want to be able to have a good feel about those two decades I spent there and not have any sort of, uh, you know, problem leaving, having them displeased with me or vice versa. Because as you know, we're hired to be fired. Stuff happens, uh, contracts get broken and feelings get hurt. I wanted to have a good feeling about that relationship. And I was glad I was able to get there. I'm glad you offer that perspective because some people may even be confused by what just happened there. And I have to offer up this question that it's not as simple as that ESPN came knocking at the door and you quit. Like you had been committed to CBS six. You had worked there. You'd put in that sweat equity. You had been there. So you just didn't leave them high and dry. You felt like it was the right thing to do to finish off your commitment to CBS six Albany. Yeah. To me, it's just the right way to do business, you know, and, and you don't burn any bridges that way, hopefully. Um, you know, I just think that's how it should be done. I made a commitment and said I was going to work for that company through this day in the, the year 2016. I'm going to do that. And, you know, they had the right to fire me and, and I could have walked away at any time. But then who wins in that scenario? You know, what, why is it so hard to, to just figure it out and, and to me do the right thing? So, so that's how I've always tried to operate. doesn't always work that way, certainly. Um, and, and I don't blame people when they, like you say, get that great offer and just go. But I had a lot of equity, a lot of sweat equity put in where I was. And uh, I wanted to make sure that RGB appreciated me as much as I appreciated them. 
All right, I've kept you long. We're going to close this podcast as we always do with five questions. Question one, what's the day in the life like for an ESPN broadcaster, especially now in February 2021? It's much slower and easier than my previous life, I'll tell you that. Uh, you know, it's just preparing for games. And, and uh, if we had video here, I could show you what I'm working on. But I'm working on right now, my next game is this Saturday, the North Carolina-Florida State game. And it takes hours to prepare charts for each team. And so you do that. But I, if I don't feel like working in, on a given day to prepare, if I know I've got enough time later in the week, I can work my entire personal schedule around that. The thing that's unbendable are the games, are the actual assignments. So in a normal year where I'm traveling, you know, I would be flying to Tallahassee, Florida this Thursday night to spend all day Friday at practices meeting with coaches, meeting with players, and then doing the game on Saturday. It's a little different now, don't have the travel component. Uh, and so Friday we will have our Zoom calls, our Zoom interviews with the coaches, call the game remotely. I'm sitting here in my home studio where we call the games from during the pandemic. Um, so it's, again, a lot of time spent at home, a lot of preparation done at home, but day to day, uh, it is not a nine to five existence. It's not a heavy lift. Uh, and for those who have only done play-by-play -play and haven't juggled the two worlds as I have, I don't think they view it as easy as I do. To me, it's relatively easy because there's a lot more time in the day that I'm not running around. What's your best advice to working with different partners, color commentators? Is it as simple as building chemistry through lunch, hanging out? How do you build that chemistry with your number two on these broadcasts? It certainly helps to get to know them. And the more you know them, as you know, you've worked with partners, whether you're doing play-by-play -play or a talk show, it only gets better as long as you like the guy or girl sitting next to you. It only gets better with time. So I have been in the ESPN world long enough that by and large, I've worked with everybody. And so I'm not thrown into a situation anymore where I have no relationship or friendship with them at all. Uh, but it certainly is easier when you know them. And I'm just glad this year, and somebody was asking me about this the other day, while we are doing these remotely, my partners are largely in their home, wherever that is, and I'm in my home, with the built-in delays as we have on Zoom and, and in other you know, technical things that we have in 2021, it's not as easy to form a true relationship. So yes, when you're on the road, it is important to try and grab a bite to eat or just hang out with that person if they are new to you and your world before you go on the air. I've done games like one game I did with Bob Knight uh, several years ago at the garden where we met 90 minutes before we went on the air and that could have gone in any different direction. We had our share of fun, uh, but I don't recommend that. It's better to get to know coach Knight a little bit before you spend two hours on national television with him. I know it's five questions, but I'm cheating now because it gave me too good of the thing right there. Did what'd you call him? Was it Bob, Bobby, Coach night, what up night? I can tell you I didn't call him what up night. Uh, <laughs> it was made very clear to me. And at the time when he worked for ESPN, they had somebody, one of the suits in Bristol. It was part of his job responsibility to make sure that everyone who worked with Coach Knight didn't call him Bobby. And they had different things they made sure not to mess with certain topics. And to me, it was, it was logical. I mean, you want to have fun and goof around with the guy next to you, but I also understand I'm not going to mention the chair toss unless I get a good rapport with him and get that feeling. But 
first game, I'm not throwing that out there and I'm not saying what up night and all of that stuff. I'm going to be respectful, but I was glad to me calling him Bobby would not have been inherently disrespectful, but he preferred being called Bob and you get that sometimes. So that was easy. That was easy to call him Bob. So I referred to him as Bob and his coach. And uh, it was, it was an interesting day to be, to, to say the least, but we had a great time. Coach and I had a great time. At least I did. That's right. You mentioned early on that basketball was your passionate call. Is it still your passion? Is it still your favorite sport to broadcast? And if so, why? Yes. And it's probably twofold. One that I just love the game of basketball at all levels, high school, small college, division one, big time division one, NBA. I love it all. So I love watching basketball. And two, because I've done it so much more than the other sports, I think I'm better at it. So that's that's the twofold reason why I say, yeah, basketball is still my sport. What's your best advice for someone wanting to get where you are to be a play-by-play broadcaster for ESPN? First of all, it applies to everybody, really in every walk of life, but in broadcasting regardless, run your own race. You got to understand that just because Mike Tirico is next to you in 1984 doesn't mean you've got to keep up with him. And just because Mike Tirico is skyrocketing to national superstardom before you figure out how to get to your Psych 101 class, that doesn't mean that you can't get where you want to go. So to any young broadcaster, run your own race. Don't have blinders on. Know who's around. Know what the, the world is like. Understand who you're chasing, who you're trying to beat for work and for jobs. But don't let it get you down if you're taking a slower route or a more circuitous route to get to where you want to go. So that's, that's the, the main general advice I would give. And the, the more specific to play by play would be, you have to do it. I mean, even if you are not on the air doing it, you have to record yourself watching a game from the stands or television, do it off of television, turn the volume down and prepare to do it as though you were on the air and then critique yourself. And if you have, people who you trust, let them critique you and learn from that. Watch the way Jim Nance calls a game. Listen to him. Watch and listen to Ian Eagle. Don't copy them, but learn from them what they do, what works, what you like, what doesn't work for you. Stylistically, bring parts of yourself to the broadcast that Ian Eagle and Jim Nance can't bring to the broadcast. Be yourself, but learn from others. But you have to do it. Too many kids, guys, Go to college, have their parents spend lots and lots of money, take their communications classes and think the degree is going to get them a job on the air. It's not. You, it doesn't matter in our profession what your GPA was. You have to get your degree. You have to show you can do it. But you have to be able to use the campus radio stations and television stations to their utmost. Don't wait till your senior year. You can have fun while still being serious about getting on the air, and that's the only way you can get better and the only way to know if it's something you really love and have a passion for. It's usually my fifth question, but uh, I already used it. So when are you going to get on Twitter? Can we get you on social media at some point? Stay off social media. It's just one more avenue for me to get in trouble. I'm staying off social media. Come on. You got to get on Twitter. I saw this tweet over the weekend. Jason Benetti tweets on everybody who's on the list and sandwiched in between the only person, eight broadcasters, one person, is not tagged on Twitter. And that's you, Doug German. No, I, oh, I saw it. And, and let me show you then, or I'll read it to you. Uh, 
So my partner on Saturday, Corey Alexander, who is on social media, uh, saw that and sent to me Tom Hart, another one of our ESPN play-by-play guys who was on that tweet that you're talking yeah. about. Tom Hart's reply to that was proof that Twitterless Sherman is the only sane one among us. Had <laughs> a baby, Tom Hart. God bless you. Is there anything else you'd like me to ask you before you go? Did I miss a great story? You've had a great career. Did I miss something you want to add before I let you go? No, no, no. The only thing I'll, I'll add is that it's a pleasure to know you and to, to be asked. I, I take it as a privilege to be part of your podcast, guys, and I wish you the best of luck. And uh, anytime, any, anything I can ever do to help you, let me know. I appreciate the time, Doug, as always. Keep up the great work, man. Thank you, guys.